Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Occasionally a book comes along to address the things that are exactly at the core of what I try to address in the Spirit in Action program. And that's what happened for me when I read James O'Dee's latest book, The Conscious Activist, where activism meets mysticism. The life that James has lived provides rich ground for reflections on the intersection of these two aspects of life. Born in Ireland, James felt a powerful pull to religious life at a tender age and got involved in activism by his mid-teens, lived and worked in Turkey and Lebanon witnessing the pain, violence, and confusion of those areas, but also coming in contact with profound mystics of the region. James eventually served as director of the Washington, D.C. office of Amnesty International for 10 years, working to spotlight and remedy abuses of human rights around the world. He has served as president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and CEO of the SEVA Foundation and as lead faculty for the Shift Network's Peace Ambassador Training. I'm especially thankful that he's willing to join me today in spite of a very severe throat problem he's currently having and we'll do our best to provide as much technical help to compensate for the difficulty he'll have in speaking with us. Remember that you can always find more, including more writings and recordings, when he's not having throat problems, via his website, jamesod.com. O-D is O-D-E-A, by the way. Or on YouTube. James O.D. joins us by phone today from Crestone, Colorado. James, I so appreciate your willingness to join us today for Spirit in Action. Great to be with you, Mark. I look forward to our conversation. You're currently located in Crestone, Colorado, which I had not known about until just recently because my wife was considering doing a yoga training retreat in that area with her yoga mentor. Could you tell me a little about the area and what you're doing there? Yes, it's sort of in a mountain retreat area. About 20 years ago, a lot of land was donated to the world's spiritual traditions. And so it's predominantly a community with spiritual interests. There are Buddhists and Hindus and Japanese Jore and Sufi and there's many different communities of faith and spiritual encounter. I like to think that we're a community that focuses on the three major elements of ecology, spirituality, and deeper community. I have moved here because of my attraction to this kind of location to 
embody in one's living and habitat the values that one seeks to promote in the world. So I don't have a center where I live here as a member of the community. I have sometimes retreats for individuals in small groups involved in kind of work that is my passion, combination of spirituality and social transformation. While you have a couple other books, your latest book is The Conscious Activist, Where Activism Meets Mysticism. Do you find that these two things, activism and mysticism, that they go together well for most people, or do they tend to see it as kind of an either-or situation? You're an activist or you're a mystic, but not both. Generally speaking, you have perception that these are very distinct worlds. The mystic is interested in off-planet activities and transcendental reality. And the activist is interested in changing this world and the systems of oppression and injustice. And of course there are some, I don't know how to call it, new age people who blend them together as if they were, of course, same thing. In my book and in my work, I like to show is really a developmental curve, really is a distinct curriculum for each. It is the work of going inward in that work of self-discovery, of exploring the source of reality, truth of who one is, the very core and essence of one's being. And there are all kinds of skills to develop learning the subtle world. On the other hand, there is the journey outward of the actors into the world to stand up, be counted, speak out, stare down oppression, help transform unjust systems, and all of the skills that are involved in mobilization of people, inspiring people, and arousing conscience. I think one has to really be honoring of both paths and the work that is involved in being effective and growing in both does come a place, as I describe in my own development in the book, it comes a place where they unite, where the activist is really maturing in the work and really sees that they have to work on themselves. They go into the root causes of ignorance and ego, and they find that they have work to do on themselves reaching a point where they realize to engage in the world, they have to be present, they have to incarnate those states of being, those states of forgiveness and unconditional love, and be, as Mahatma Gandhi pointed out, to change what the world most needs. Is there a particular danger you would point to if one does not develop both sides? if one only develops the mystical inward and not the activist, or if develops only the activist, is there anything that's particularly problematic if you don't do both? Well, I'm not one to judge. I think there's a potential trap to be aware of that spirituality is about another place, a place beyond this world. And I think that, that can be a trap sort of falling into the transcendental reality and ignoring what is right in front of us. 
you know, each of us in our soul's journey and in our lifetime may have certain kinds of priorities given our own karmic development and the nature of the conditions that are operating in our lives. So I have met contemplatives who are doing great work for the world. I have met committed activists who don't think about spirituality, but who are helping save the forests and the habitat and bringing health and social justice and human rights to different parts of the world. The fact there also is that you can always, you can sort of fall into that place where the problem is outside you. And really, when we begin to understand the nature of reality, it's a continuum of inner and outer. And then once we're aware of the nature of consciousness itself, we see how ego itself is, in fact, the common element that the mystic and the activists have to deal with if they're to serve their ultimate mission. How much do you find your perspective right now in common with the perspective of you as a young boy when James O.D. was, before he's reached his teens, when he finds his vocation is to become a Catholic priest, when you headed off to Shrigley for the year and a half that you were there, how much do you find in common with that young boy and his ideals and his motivations? Well, for me, I'm very powerfully interested in the way we can acknowledge and honor childhood spirituality. I think we get messed up a little by psychology and cognitive psychology. We have Piaget and other developmental psychologists who say that certain kind of mental operations are sequentially developed and only developed at certain ages. And the reason I think that's sort of, again, a trap is that putting the whole weight in the cognitive, in the intellectual, and ignoring the spirit. And I truly believe a child can experience spirit which actually is a form of appreciation of the whole, of the vastness, of the depth of the universe as it appears inside of one. And so in my own case, I had a precocious spiritual experience, I think partly brought on by the fact that I was born into trauma. My sister died on the eve of my birth, and my mother discovered that she was carrying me as she was mourning the loss of her first daughter. And so, like, there were intense conditions in utero and in early childhood for me to potentially develop that spiritual sense of being. And so I I ached, I longed for this intensification of the spiritual work and precociously persuaded my parents to allow me at age 11 to go to, we had moved as a family from Ireland to England, to allow me to go to a seminary in a fairly remote part of England. And really, I'm so grateful for that period, for the the days of silence and fasting, and the rising early in the day for Mass before breakfast, all those experiences were highly developmental. They allowed me to go into the territory of the mystic, to experience ecstatic, really did 
earlier in life. And then it all fell apart. We just the universe said, okay, enough of that. Try something that's going to really nudge you out of that security that you're in. For our listeners, you have to read the book to get the whole story as to why, in the end, I got up in the night, robbed the bank of the school, and headed off on a journey back to Ireland. And really, the important part of the telling of that narrative is the fall from grace, is that experience when you've tasted directly the sweetheart nature of the divinity of one's own soul, and then to lose that, to do something that you know is cataclysmic in a spiritual sense, hurts other people, is wrecking, is careless, is unconscionable in its own way, and is the fall from grace. And that fall from grace is so powerful because it tells you, I want to get back. I want to get back to a state of grace. I can't go take the route that I took initially. So there has to be a new path, a new way for me. In my own case, there's this tremendous sense of loss, of longing, of desolation, of fearing that I had hurt others. And that's really instrumental, that's ferment, that's really fertile territory for spiritual development because it opens up the depth of longing that is so important for ministry. And in my case, that turned, that longing turned into service and social action and really beginning to focus my moral energy towards helping senior citizens and as described in the book I get an award as teenager of the year and start to really do have an activist voice as a fifteen and sixteen year old in London. And again then it was an early developmental experience for me where I really am passionate, I'm helping others, I'm being awarded, I'm being recognized. And the government, the senior person in the British government, writes to me and says, it seems as if you have a serious critique of the way we treat senior citizens. I would be so grateful if you would come and discuss these matters with me. And I wrote back with the arrogance of youth and the arrogance of the activists. And I said, you know what you need to do, and when you do it, we can meet. See there, I was refusing dialogue. I was on my high horse. I was polarizing the other. I, I needed that polarity in order to work the way I did as an adolescent activist. But really, we need dialogue. The maturing act activist has to see the truth is not one-sided. There is a just cause. There is also dialogue, and dialogue is a very interesting word. The root of the word dialogue is dia logos. Dia means through logos, a higher mind, the higher reason. So it's together we must go through the higher mind and the higher reason in order to find that place where we can meet each other, where we can resolve conflict where we can truly be instruments of an evolving story of peace and reconciliation. And that's exactly what we need in this world. Somehow you made that transition. You left Shrigley under benighted circumstances, but you went on to great activism after 
you're rising in people's notice because of your activism with Miss Winter. I thought it was so beautiful and perhaps so horrible as well, the way that you return your address to the government official when you got on your high horse. Somehow yet, this train of activism led you to go to the Middle East, to both Turkey and eventually to Lebanon. Are there any of the stories that you share in the book? And again, folks, the book is The Conscious Activist, Where Activism Meets Mysticism by James O.D. Are there any of the stories from your experience in the Middle East that you think would be particular use to our listeners right now to give them an idea of how concretely you got motivated in the depth of your activism? Well, for me, it was a question of how do I serve, deepen my service. As you can tell a little in the book, I blur the line a little bit between service and activism. And I think they need to be blurred in the sense that when we talk about service, we get a sense, we get an echo, we get a resonance. There's something stirring inside the person that makes them want to act on behalf of others. But you're still in that field of action. And in my case, when I went to Turkey and was caught up in a knifing incident and lost a lot of blood in the knifing incident and actually was taken to the hospital by a mysterious angel of the night who dropped me on the steps of the hospital. He didn't want to get involved. But that was such a powerfully interesting moment for me when I was writing the book and reviewing that part of my life. That after the knifing incident, I mean, literally every ditch of clothing I had and talked about it, even including the shoes I was wearing. Everything had to be thrown out because it was soaked in blood. And I had a first thought a few days later while being in recuperation that nobody will think the less of me if I leave Turkey now and return to England. And I was a teacher and then later senior administrator at a boys' boarding school in southern Turkey. But Something happened, some mysterious connection of the depths rose up in me, and I found that, in fact, my commitment had been deepened, that my sense of life's purpose had been strengthened, that I really now knew that I had an even deeper reason to live, that I'd been given my life back, and I was going to use it even more passionately than I had used it before. And I think, you know, in terms of your question, that would be my response, you know, to people who find themselves sometimes in a moment of crisis or trauma, things fall apart. When we drop down, there are certain elements of the book you'll see them recurrently where some sort of crisis happens. But yet, out of that crisis, something even more powerful and beautiful is born. As if the soul wants challenges to wake up, to see the true nature, to stop being asleep. And you know, I wrote a, an earlier book called Creative Stress, a path for evolving souls living through personal and collective trauma. And there is that sense that you find in the conscious actors that sometimes the gravest challenges reveal the deepest and most powerful spiritual 
capacities of the human being was revealed to me in Beirut after the massacres. And it was revealed to me in dialogues between former Nazi and Holocaust survivors. That spiritual power of the human being to forgive, to release the past, to heal, to move on, to move forward, point the way for the next cycle of evolutionary development. I would say that it is really in that sense of meeting the crisis and the trauma is the invitation to meet ourselves at the next level of death and wonder. And sometimes it looks pretty paradoxical. I am pretty sure that uh, a large percentage of people not tuned to the same spiritual frequency as you are, that getting knifed almost to the point of death would be a pretty good idea, that a message from the universe to maybe turn and run, whereas paradoxically you found it as a motivation for deeper commitment. At that time, did you still spiritually, religiously identify as Catholic? What spiritual guides were you following at that time? I was not really after my teenage experiences. I moved out of the Catholic Church. I was beginning to open up to other spiritual forms. I was still quite influenced by certain Christian principles and Christ-centered service. I had not engaged with, as I did later in my career, a little later, with being opened up by Sufi masters. And Sufism became a strong stream for me. But I think it was my path, as it is for some of us, to be exposed to Catholic and Protestant, to be exposed to Buddhist and Hindu, at a more than superficial level to have that mystical journey towards the oneness that is the source of all. Well, let's continue with a little bit about your stay in the Middle East, which lasted at least a few years. You had the time in Turkey, you had time in Lebanon. Were there any other events that precipitated a much greater sense of consciousness of what you needed to do as your work in the world? Certainly, the experiences in Beirut really both challenged my sense of overcoming despair in human cruelty and at the same time beginning to see that the indomitable nature of the human spirit is at the root of all experience. So there was the intensity of Beirut, the bombing, the massacres, the graphic nature of the killing of children and women in massacres really pierced the veil for me in a way that, again, was more of a spiritual crisis in terms of finding the light when it seems as if the world was covered in darkness. And it's so interesting that shortly after that, I began to have contact with the spiritual masters in Istanbul and really the rigorous training they put me under in terms of fasting and praying and experiencing the state. The Sufis have a wonderful kind of metaphoric system. They talk about a lot getting cooked and tasting and a sense of really tasting the spiritual realm is so important. We can get trapped again by getting the concept. Well, I can convey the concept to you 
that's definitely not the same as you're experiencing the reality behind that concept. So I would find myself in the antique bookstore of Sheikh Musafer Fendi in Istanbul with literally dervish activity going around all day and then people who really book buyers coming into buy books and seeing how those realities could mesh together that the Sheikh could be the antique book dealer and when the, the customer left the store he would return to deep spiritual conversation. And my final encounter in Istanbul was with a wonderful mystic who's still alive to this day, who really encouraged me not to become addicted to the spiritual path, not to find that I was centering my life around prayer and worship and the transcendental realm. And he asked me to take a fast from all of the spiritual praying and activity. And it was after that, he said, like he was cleaning the slate for something else to come in. And what came in after that was Amnesty International. It was, you know, I started working for Amnesty International. So you can see the weave of spirituality and action just got deeper and deeper. When I abstained from spiritual work, the activist work came more deeply. And the activist work beginning to see how, in fact, what was needed most was the healing of our world rather than the polarization and condemnation. As much as I could fuel moral outrage, eventually 10 years for, of working for Amnesty International, my sense of moral outrage is that a burnout point? There's a whole lot we can talk about that, and we will do that in a moment. Right now, I want to remind our listeners that you are tuned in, listening to Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. We're on the web at northernspiritradio.org, where we have nine and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. We have further information about and links to our guests. So if you want to get a hold of James O.D., you can find the link to jamesod.com. That's J-A-M-E-S-O-D-E-A dot com. Or simply follow the link from northernspiritradio.org. There's also a place for comments, and we love two-way communication. So please, when you visit our site, post a comment. Also, there's a place to donate, and that is how we sustain this work. Click on Support to donate to Northern Spirit Radio. But even more important than that, I ask that you first consider supporting your local community radio stations, the kind of stations that carry these programs, because they contain a slice of news and of music that you get nowhere else on the American airwaves. So please start by supporting your local community radio station. Again, our guest is James O.D. He's author of a new book, The Conscious Activist, where activism meets mysticism. He's part of the Shift Network's Peace Ambassador Training. He's lead faculty for that. He served as president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, director for 10 years of Amnesty International's Washington, D.C. office. That was in the mid-80s to 90s. He's CEO of SEVA Foundation, 
And there's many more items that we could add to your curriculum vitae, James. From your perspective at this point in your life, what items would you put at the top of your curriculum vitae to say, these are the most important ones that I've been part of? Again, that's hard because what I really like to emphasize is the developmental curve so that each element helps us evolve towards the next element. That includes one's errors, one's false grace, one's inadequacy. All of those things become part of the building block, the deeper path. But I'm grateful that after so many years of service with Amnesty International, working every day to free prisoners of conscience, stop torture and executions and human rights abuse, I was able to go on and serve in other capacities, but also to help facilitate social healing dialogue parts of the world. And really, it was that transition from amnesty, from that state of mind where, you know, you're trying to stop the perpetrator from doing what they do, to a larger kind of, where you're trying to intervene at the level of consciousness around the wound that is transmitted from generation to generation, where the wound itself causes perpetration, where the victim becomes the abuser, and the cycles of abuse and perpetration get transmitted generationally. And to begin to look at our capacity to go into that wound, understand its nature, and interrupt its transmission, and to experience the capacity, the human capacity for healing and forgiveness and reconciliation, to see that, in fact, these are powerful evolutionary drivers, and that the path forward for humanity is, as Archbishop Desmond Tutu has wisely said, there is no future without forgiveness. There is no future without reconciliation. I'm deeply honored to have been part of so many dialogues that bring forth that depth of healing. The word healing itself comes from the root to make whole, to make whole again, to restore. Now we can talk about justice, not from the punitive perspective, but from the restorative perspective, from the healing perspective. And that gives me a great sense of relief that that work is growing, that the restorative justice movement is growing, the social healing movement is growing. We understand the power of forgiveness, conflict resolution. These are very powerful evolutionary drivers. You know, there's so many wonderful stories, James, that you share in The Conscious Activist, both from your childhood, from your spiritual experiences, and from your time with Amnesty International. There was one that I felt completely involved in, the moral conundrum you found yourself in, the moral bind that you experienced regarding the U.S. justification for military invasion of Iraq. Saddam Hussein, Amnesty International had done up a paper analyzing how horrible that regime had been. And the president of the United States says, I want it so I can look at it 
and you knew that there was the danger that this would be used to justify war. Could you talk a little bit about your experience of that conundrum, how you made that choice? It seems so very challenging. Yes, you know, in my early activism, the case we refer to briefly as Mrs. Winter, when I went to her home and found the terrible situation of neglect and exposed it, you know, there really was that sense of moral clarity and simplicity. This is wrong. We can do better. Let's change it. And there is that element that's still there for me. Some things like blindness that I worked on at the Theta Foundation. Fifteen million people in India alone were blind from cataract blindness. We could take out those cataracts. We could restore sight to 15 million people. We have the resources. We could do it. It's morally clear. And yet, there's also that element of complexity that you're picking up on. That in the height of this challenging situation is Saddam Hussein having so cruelly tortured his own people, so cruelly abused them. Even cases of his gouging out the eyes of Kurdish children to send a message to their parents. Monstrous cruelty. And that his invasion of Kuwait was documented by amnesty in terms of that cruelty. You want that moral clarity. You want that simplicity. I'm on the side of right, and this is how we're going to make the world better. But that report... The president wanted it so badly before everybody else because he wanted to use it as a causeless belly, as a declaration of the truth of his position that Saddam needed to be struck because he was going to take his next country, he was going to invade with Saudi Arabia. I just felt such deep sense of pressure and confusion entered into my dream like I had most vivid nightmare of a scorpion entering my heart, flying and entering my heart. And I woke up literally with the hair on the back of my head rising. I now understand that that's a true physiological reaction to fear. And I sort of reflected at that point, no knights in shining armor, no sense of simple moral equation. Reality is that Saddam had to be stopped, and reality is also that war creates more abuse and more carnage and violations. We have to walk through that complexity with as much light in our consciousness and conscience as we can bring to any choice and any decision. In my case, I decided to relent and allow the White House to get a copy of the report early. And I wrote in, in ink on the cover for the president's eyes only, strictly embargoed, because I felt that it was really important for him to read a full report on human rights abuses by Amnesty International. And hopefully that would affect his own consciousness about human rights abuses. And I like your question because it reminds us that there isn't always that shining line between what is the best way forward or not, or who's on the right side and who's on the wrong side.
We have to work with enormous complexity. The only thing we can do is really rely on our own instincts deeply as we can to guide us through. It's a bit like the very famous, I think, cartoon Pogo. We have met the enemy and they as us to not realize that the problems and the complexities and the multiple values that we need to apply to look at a situation are within us when we only see them out there versus in us. I think we shortchange reality. Yes, indeed. And we can get into this fixation that all we need to do is study the problem better. You know, people have PhDs in every kind of problem. We can talk up the problem. But actually becoming the solution, wow, that seems like a whole different territory of being, a nervous order of being. We actually are called to understand the problem, to see the problem, to see the complexity of the systemic nature of problems, and yet to put our best energy and our greatest creativity into becoming the solution. The book we're talking about, and really it's part of the results of the life experience of James O'Dea, the book is The Conscious Activist, Where Activism Meets Mysticism. Your 10 years as the director of the Washington office for Amnesty International. Are there any other stories that you care to share right now before we talk about your work since that period? One story I share is the story of a dungeon in Morocco called Kazmamurk. And it was referred to as the king of Morocco's private rose garden. That's where he had people sent that he had a personal issue around, and I share the story of getting a letter smuggled out from the prison by a prison guard who had some conscience, and he described, you know, how over half the prisoners died of hunger or malnutrition or the cold, sleeping on a cold cement slab. We testified in Congress about this issue. I read part of the letter from the prison at the end of my testimony. And really, this was an example for me of working the levers of power. You knew if you got enough attention to have Congress hold a hearing on it, the transcription of the hearing would be immediately relayed to the relevant government. came, if you like, the king's bedtime reading. And Amnesty continued to use pressure with letters from members around the world. About six months later, the King of Morocco closed Tasmanwort Prison. About a year after that, I had the privilege of meeting one of the men who had been in prison there for 18 years. Very, very powerful experience to meet someone who had been saved in that way, to see that really one can use those levers of power, one can really get solutions in places that where you would never expect progress to be made. And so it takes a lot of energy and focus energy to keep driving through issues like that day after day. It does. And you said that at the end of your 10 years, 
you'd felt burnt out, or at least that's how I've seen it written down, been burnt out after all this time that you had served with Amnesty International. I think of someone like Mother Teresa, who put many decades into what most people would think of as desperate, hopeless work, the unending poor and the, all the suffering that she faced daily. Was there something that you, James O'D., were missing or maybe could have had that would have sustained you so that it would have been sustainable to continue working for Amnesty International? Maybe that's just not what you were called to do, so I'm not presuming that you should have stayed at that work. But the fact that you were burned out, it seems to me to indicate there was something perhaps missing. In Mother Teresa's case, when she was asked about she reflected that in each of the people she met, you know, high or low, suffering or celebrated, she saw the faces of the beloved, of the beloved divine in each of them. And so she was a high-level conscious activist in that sense. She was seeing the Godhead in each being. In Amnesty, I had been deeply conditioned by the polarization of the perpetrator and the victim, and the need to prosecute the perpetrator, to stop the torture, to stop the abuse. That's how the work was organized. So it really required me to move on beyond that, to explore how does the perpetrator get so wounded? What are the states of being themselves that we need to look at? So early in my own development, I was ready to move to a place of uh, the exploration of healing and those capacities that do, in fact, renew us. We cannot move into the future without them. We will always be polarized by us, them, and our victims and perpetrators. And it's not an easy way. There is no simple remedy in this story, but there is the invitation to sit down and to begin to explore healing. And if former Nazis and Holocaust survivors, if Catholics and Protestants from Northern Ireland, if Israelis and Palestinians, if Hutu and Tutsis can do it, we can do it. The mother in Rwanda can forgive the murderers of her three children. We can go that far. These are the wayshores, these are the exemplars that say, beyond the polarization, beyond the punishment, beyond that obsession with finding the punishment for the perpetrator, there is a path to healing. There is a way forward for humanity that we can take, and it requires its own development of human capacities and consciousness. And fortunately, if people do sit down and read The Conscious Activist, and I hope they will, they'll get some of the ideas of the important steps that they might be taking, and certainly that you took, in leading up to your involvement in wholeness, in integration. That's one of the words you use there. Another one that you speak about is the importance of sacrifice. You call it the heart of mysticism. Could you explain a little bit about that for our listeners, James? In the contemplative traditions, 
the concept of sacrifice is really a decision or choice that is made in favor of a higher principle. It's not a, you know, when you make sacrifices in your life, you're doing them in favor of that higher principle that says, I let these things go in my life. I'm going to allow in something more perfect, more life-giving, more whole. And so we don't often think about it in terms of activism. Gandhi, of course, understood sacrifice as central, as the central tenet of nonviolence. He says there comes a point where you meet the violent force. You are the one who must sacrifice. Again, because you are, you're pointing to a higher principle. You're taking the higher ground. And when you do that, then you reveal your strength to those who would beat you and oppress you. What I do in that chapter on sacrifice, I bring it home to the domestic front, because I think that's where a lot is revealed in terms of what's really happening spiritually in our lives. How activist is the activist when it comes to the home front? You know, they're out there saving whales or saving the rainforest. How are they doing on the domestic front? What are they giving up? What are they giving for domestic peace and harmony and autonomy of the children and so forth? So I use my own separation and divorce story as an example of how, in our case, we made sacrifices for the children. We, instead of building them up and having different households, we had one household which the parents rotated around. I was there half the week. My wife was there the other half the week. And it was enormously complicated and required quite a few sacrifices. But it affirmed for the children, they were the nucleus of the family. And it was a very, very healing situation. They had done wonderfully well through the process. It really reinforced to them the parents could make sacrifices and choices in their lives so that the unity and the harmony of the whole could grow. So how about that? The family was strengthened in its own dynamic way through the process rather than broken up and divided. I think sacrifice is a very deep theme. We want to get out of the martyr imagery of sacrifice and replace it with that choice or preference to do something that favors a much higher principle. There are that and many, many other lessons and principles synchronicity is another one or this sensitivity to leadings that most people would dismiss but it's almost as if you have a developed a, an additional sense could you talk about your trip you were going to the Fetzer Institute Kalamazoo you got aborted in Chicago you went back to Marin County could you talk about that and how your faithfulness to that sensitive leading was so important? Yes, indeed. I'll tell you before that, a friend recently told me about listening to the inner voice, and he said he was out driving one day, and the inner voice said, pull over now, 
and he pulled over, and sure enough, coming out of control, a huge truck careening around the corner. If he had been in the road, he would have been hit. And a few weeks later, he was out driving, and he heard the voice, Pull over now! And he pulled over and waited ten minutes, and nothing happened. And he said, you know, the challenge is to know when to listen to that voice and know that it's the deepest voice of your own inner guidance and when it's just the dabbling voice of the mind. In my case, in a story too complex to write now, but it's in the book, I was heading out to Kalamazoo to a meeting that got postponed and found myself taking a day off work and driving out along the California coast and came to Bellinas and basically felt called by my inner voice to go into a house and introduce myself. A totally challenging and daring and difficult thing to do, to walk past the house and have your voice saying, okay, go inside and introduce yourself. And to know when that voice is faithfully and truly your own inner voice breaking through the constructions of time and space, calling you to be faithful to it, to listen so deeply that you're willing to face the embarrassment and the acute difficulty of going up to a house and saying, hello, what's going on here? And in my case, it was a very, very rich encounter with the universe, a tear in the fabric of reality itself which I did go up to that house, and believe it or not, the human rights leaders of America had all been meeting in that house and had recently left. It became a very profound experience around why I was called into that house. And before I left, a young woman asked me the question, what is the relationship between spirituality and human rights? And it was really in responding to that like the universe had orchestrated this bizarre set of circumstances where I walk into a house that I didn't know, where everybody who had been in the house I knew, and they were all human rights leaders, and then somebody asking me, what is the relationship between spirit and human rights? So that I could answer it, so that I could hear myself speaking about the evolution of consciousness itself, the movement in human rights into this inner work, the transmission of wounding and healing, the whole story of the evolution of our human rights work and story from being against to creating something new. It was a very, very powerful example of really that primitive nature of spirit, where spirit can get right into the gut and say, do you hear me down here? you hear me resonating in the gut? you hear me calling you to do something which may seem outrageous? Are you willing to take the step out of the known world, out of the conditioned world, and be with what could be so entirely different? And it's there all the time, that voice calling us out, calling us onward to step into and what we're really called to step into is that path of deep self-discovery, 
we have an identity, a being, a soul force, that the universe wants, the universe is calling us, come, be, act, be with me, be truly who you are. And in doing that, I think we release what I call the self-actualizing power of love. That at our root, we are all love, even those who get through acts of ignorance, to very dangerous and criminal paths. If they could really, really discover who they were, they would be led back to the path of love. We've covered so much, and there's so much more yet in the book. The Conscious Activist, Where Activism Meets Mysticism, by James O.D. We didn't touch on, or barely touched upon, such portions as your work as president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, as CEO of the SEVA Foundation. There's so much more that you've done, continue to do to this day, James. I am honored to have the fruits of that in this book and for you to share today. It's really an inspirational journey, and your stories are so captivating and your thoughts so profound. I really hope that our listeners will go out and find the conscious activist. Use it to nurture their own path. So thank you so much for writing the book, for living the life, and for joining me here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. Many blessings on the journey. Remember that you can read and listen to James on his website, jamesod.com, J-A-M-E-S-O-D-E-A.com, or listen to him before he had his severe throat issue. You can find him on YouTube. In any case, thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice